0: Thank you, Tony and team. Thank you, Debbie and Matt, uh, for leading us so far in worship. If I'm a little tired this morning, it's because I was up late last night. Uh, probably not, not Brian. Brian went to bed early. I so just want you to know that. But I was up late last night with the rest of you rooting on the uh, Ohio State Buckeyes. Uh, the first service, we uh, let off the service with singing to him, Take Time to be Holy. And as I was singing that song, I just started thinking to myself, how many of us took time last night to be holy as we had our head bows and our hands folded, praying, when Ohio State was on 4-1, and one, right? And then they lost that, that, that set of downs, but they came back to win that game. Give Notre Dame credit. Notre Dame credit. I, I, I said to the first service, I think God is a Protestant, right? Like Maybe not a Protestant, but he does play favorites, right? No, it is a joy to be in worship with you this morning. I'll try to keep you awake uh, with a message on holiness. Uh, This morning, uh, we are continuing on in a a series of messages we've been in now for a couple weeks called New Lens. And really what we're trying to do throughout this series is just simply start a conversation around the necessity of operating outside of a biblical worldview or, or with a biblical worldview. Friends, there's no doubt in my mind each and every single one of us look at the world in which we live the problems we face, the the direction we hope to move in life through a variety of lenses, right? Uh, For instance, uh, what does culture think about X, Y, and Z? What is a political persuasion? What is my family background? What is uh, my own self-interest? What do those lenses provide for me to help guide me to make each and every decision I make in this life? What well, my prayer is throughout this series is ultimately we will look through a biblical scriptural lens to make any and every decision we make. And the reason being is because we realize that out of all the, the um, lenses we have, it's scripture that offers us the best insight into what God desires for our lives. Listen, God created us. God knows what we need. God desires, um, has our best interests at heart. And that's why we want a biblical lens to look through and that culture or political persuasions or, or any other lens. Well, today we're going to look at one verse of scripture out of the book of Leviticus, and we're going to talk about holiness. Now, before you turn me off, I know holiness feels like a, a, an outdated churchy word, but all holiness means is set apart. It's the difference really between fine china and everyday ordinary dinnerware right you pull the fine china out for the special occasions you use the dinnerware ordinary dinnerware for all other meals uh, we as people of god here this are always set apart for god's purpose regardless of where we find ourselves with who we find ourselves with and for what purpose we're with them so this morning leviticus eleven forty five is our verse of focus and since it's our memory verse for this week will you read it with me Leviticus 11:45 says, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Friends, this is God's word for God's people. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious, let me ask in the midst of these next few moments that you would just bless the words of my lips, the meditation of all our hearts, that they be of profit to us and acceptable to you for you indeed are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So here's a quick question. How many sermons have you heard preached out of the book of Leviticus? My guess is not too many. If you've been with Brian over the course of his ministry here, he'll tell you he has never preached out of the book of Leviticus until today. Uh, you know, Leviticus is generally the book that l- likes to trip people up who, who set out on reading the whole Bible in any given calendar year, right? You got Genesis, you got Exodus, amazing stories of the faith. Then you come to Leviticus. I mean, the name alone sounds kind of daunting, doesn't it? Maybe a bit boring. Leviticus sounds like some type of disease. Or or maybe the the full name of those jeans we wore in the 1980s. (laughs) Levi's, Leviticus. What often trips us up, what what compels a, a lack of motivation in even engaging this book of the Bible is that it's filled with rituals and rules about diet, about dress, and about archaic ritual, uh, religious rituals. L- let me give you some of the rules that are just downright weird in the book of Leviticus, okay? Eating locusts is good, eating shrimp is bad. Huh, interesting, right? Piers, God loves sideburns because you're, if you're a man, you're not allowed to cut your sideburns. You see, some of the more Orthodox Jewish people in our communities have those curly cues around the sides of their. Head is because they're not allowed to, to cut them. Uh, tattoos are taboos. Even the ones around your ring finger that you, you, you tattoo there to profess your undying and unwavering love for your spouse, that's taboo. Children, back talking to your parents could get you stoned. Okay? The Levitical law forbids the wearing of mixed fibers for your clothes. So if you're wearing polyester today, not only are you out of style, but you're also sinning. <laughs> But let me give you another one. Levitical law says that if two guys are duking it out, okay, over some misunderstanding, and the wife of one of those guys steps in and reaches out and grabs, uh, let's say, special, more sensitive parts of the other guy, you shall cut off her hand. Now, out of all the rules spelled out in Levitical law, why that one, right? (laughs) Like, what is going on in ancient Israel at that time That Moses decided this needed to be in the Code of Conduct handbook. You know, maybe more confusing than the rules and regulations written down in the book of Leviticus is this question many have struggled with. Why does it seem that we follow some of these Levitical rules today while we dismiss others? For example, when Leviticus talks about certain sexual behaviors as sin, we quote that. But when it talks about not eating shellfish or having hamburgers with cheese on it, we say, oh, that doesn't apply to us anymore. Like, like, are we being hypocritical or picking and choosing what parts of the law we want to follow and what parts we don't want to follow? Okay, let me address that question really quickly because it's a big question, and it's caused a lot of confusion and debate when addressing biblical principles in our given societal and, and cultural context. In Leviticus, there are three types of laws that are outlined. There, there's civil law, there's ceremonial law, and then there's moral law. Civil law are the laws that were put in place to kind of construct a nation. Uh, these were laws that, that set up the nation of Israel, uh, the behavior we are to have within a community. Ceremonial law dealt with the regulations uh, around, uh, and rules around cleanliness and around the sacrificial system for our atonement of sin, for the cleansing of our sin, Moral law are laws that have to do with behaviors and practices that God deems immoral. Uh, This would include anything from murder to theft to ideals and even ethics around sexuality. So when Jesus came, he said two things about the law that that may at first sound contradictory, but they are not at all contradictory when when you dig a little deeper into it. First thing Jesus says about the law is the law is perfect. Uh, Matthew 5 verse 18 the beginning chapter of his sermon on the mount Jesus says this sooner would heaven and earth pass away than one jot or tittle of the law fall or fail jot or tittles are Hebrew punctuations so Jesus says the law is perfect but he also says that if you are born again of water and the spirit guess what you are released from the law because he fulfilled the law for you so the law is perfect but if you're of him you are now released from the law because he fulfilled the law. What does it mean that Jesus fulfilled the law? Well, all it means is the entire law pointed to Jesus and that Jesus actually fulfilled the regulations and rules and requirements of those laws. So the, the civil laws that set up the nation of Israel, Israel would be the nation Jesus emerged from. When Jesus came, he started a new Israel, a spiritual Israel. So guess what? We no longer are bound by the civil codes of the Levitical law because God doesn't have a nation state on earth anymore. Ceremonial laws illustrate God's holiness and our unholiness and what we are to do about it to make ourselves in right standing with God. Uh, The word holy in Leviticus is used over 80 times. Uh, Friends, all the laws and sacrifices around holiness and, and uncleanliness were fulfilled in the life death and resurrection of jesus christ praise be to god for that that we no longer have these ceremonial laws there's no longer needing you all to bring in bowls and goats and other animals up here on this stage to slaughter and have their blood cleanse you from your sin that would be kind of gross and really smelly in here i'm not sure we'd motivate people to come to church if we still had to do that The book of Hebrews in the New Testament makes it clear that if we have accepted Christ as our Savior, if we trust in the sacrifice he made for us on the cross, that his blood cleanses us of all unrighteousness for all time. Again, no longer do we have to have the blood of bulls or goats to cover us of our sin for a certain time. God's sacrifice, his blood, has the cleansing power that it's once and for all. That's ceremonial and civil law. Now, the moral laws... This is a however, and the reason being is the moral laws reflect what God finds to be good and right and what he declares to be offensive. So those laws still apply today because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Throughout his life, friends, Jesus reaffirmed those moral laws that were dictated in the Old Testament. He told us to to live by them, to act like him, to love them as he loves them, to be repulsed by them as he's repulsed by them. So saying that the sexual ethics of Levitical law is still relevant today, but prohibitions around dietary restrictions or wearing mixed fiber clothing is an arbitrary distinction at all, or is an arbitrary distinction, unnecessary for today, is not being inconsistent with Levitical law. It's being straight on point with how the New Testament tells us to understand the Levitical laws and the different categories that Leviticus has in it. Now, with all that said, the theme of holiness, which we find in Leviticus, is picked up all throughout the New Testament. So after Jesus is resurrected from the dead, the Holy Spirit comes, ignites the church into existence. The disciple, Peter, turned apostle, um, the, the, the disciple Peter, who turned apostle, wrote a letter to the early church called First Peter. And in First Peter, Peter talks about the necessity of holiness being a defining identity marker for God's people. In First Peter 1.13, he says this, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Set, out, uh, set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. We we were uh, imprisoned by sin, uh, by immoral living. But because of Christ, we no longer have to to be conformed to those desires because we have been set free by them. That's what Peter's saying. But he goes on to say, Instead, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct, for it is written, here in Leviticus 11.45, You shall be holy, for I am holy. However, it's not holiness in a way that beckons behavioral modification to earn salvation. It's not holiness that that beckons us to live in such a way where we at least are accepted before our Father God. Friends, the issue I think we have with holiness is if we're not careful with it, it can really be a vain pursuit to living up to God's moral standards in our own strength. And friends, that never works, does it? Think about it this way. Tell me if this cycle uh, is recognizable to you. Uh, Think about a sin or or some sins, uh, things that you know God does not approve of. Think of those things that, that you engage that you just can't seem to stop engaging in. Like you can't get out from under those things. You know they're wrong. You know it grieves the heart of God. And even every time you engage those things, you hate yourself for it. And in the aftermath of hating yourself, you make these promises to God, God, I will never do that again. I'm going to do it right this time. I'm going to abide by your moral standard. Well, day goes by, week goes by, month goes by. The temptation creeps back in. What happens? You get fixated on the temptation and you engage in the sinful desire again. Once it's done, you hate yourself all over again. You make these promises to God that you'll never do it again. Do you recognize that cycle? You get to the point, I think, where you start thinking, I guess this is just who I am until the day I die. Holy? That's a far cry from what I'll ever be this side of heaven. Mark Moore, in his book, Core 52, begs the question what makes an object or a person holy? Now, this question is going to drive the rest of this message. What makes a a person or an object holy? By the way, Core 52, this initiative we've been in now for all of 2023, if you have fallen off with your reading, this is the week to get back on the saddle. Uh, This chapter 5 on holiness is by far my favorite chapter I've read out of Mark Moore's book. Anyways, what makes an object or a person holy? Mark Moore goes on to say, holiness happens, hear this, when God takes ordinary objects and claims them for his purposes. He then gives some examples. An ordinary plot of land becomes sacred if God shows up there, right? Think of the burning bush moment in Moses' call to ministry. Uh, An animal, an ordinary animal set aside for sacrifice suddenly becomes consecrated. A person elected by God becomes a priest or a prophet. Here's the important line in it all. Those become sacred, the plot of land, the animal, or the person becomes sacred, not because their nature becomes different, but because their purpose becomes different. Man, so many quotable lines from this chapter in Mark Moore's book. Let me give you one more. Holiness happens when God proclaims, not when a person performs. Wow. Our holiness is God's gift to us, not our gift to him holiness is received not achieved now don't get lost in the conversation are we called to live holy lives yes Is holiness supposed to be a defining marker for us the people of god yes it is however our practice of holiness follows god's proclamation of holiness church god chose us to be holy So let's be holy, right? Holiness becomes our identity marker in Christ Jesus. We have been set apart from our sordid society. We have been set apart from our, our evil society. And when that reality, I think, seeks into our soul, our actions begin to change. Our lives begin to get aligned with God's character, God's nature. Let me describe it this way with an example. I'm a big fan of musicals. Uh, My favorite musical by far is Les Mis. I think the way you actually say that in French is Les Miserables. Is that right? I'm not a French person. That's why I say Les Mis. Anyways, Les Mis was a story written by Victor Hugo to depict living in France in the 19th century. Hollywood even took that that, that, uh, book by Victor Hugo and made it into a movie, a blockbuster hit. That starred Hugh Grant, Russell Crowe, and-, and Anne Hathaway. Anyways, one of the most touching moments in that movie I saw, starring those three characters, happened near the beginning. Uh, Jean Valjean, played by Hugh Jackman, has been just been released from prison after spending nearly 20 years behind bars for stealing a loaf of bread to feed his sister's hungry child. Not sure the punishment fit the crime there, but I digress. While in prison, Jean Valjean believes himself to be nothing more than a thief. Well, he's out of prison, can't land a job, can't land a friend, can't land a home, stumbles into the church. Priest of that church extends hospitality to Jean Valjean. He uh, gives him something to eat, a place to sleep for that evening. But before the morning comes, Jean Valjean robs the man blind, runs off into the dark. Well, early the next morning, the police catch Jean Valjean drag him back to the church, to the, to the priest's home. And they say to the priest, We caught this man red-handed. He stole all the silver from the house, yet he tr- is trying to convince us that you gave it to him. Say the word and we'll take him back to prison. All the priest had to do was not his head to confirm. Jean Valjean stole all of his silver. He would have been carted off back to prison to spend the rest of his life there, case closed. But that's not what the priest does. You know the story, right? As he stands in front of Jean Valjean, he looks him in the eye and he says, I'm angry with you, Jean Valjean. Long, long silence. I'm angry with you, Jean Valjean, because you forgot to take the silver candlesticks. They're the most valuable of all the items that you took. Why would you have forgotten to take the silver candlesticks? Please, dumbfounded, release Jean Valjean from his chains. They leave the scene. Once Jean Valjean and the priest are alone, he looks at the priest and he says, why are you doing this? To which the priest says, and here's what I want you to hear, with this silver and this, these candlesticks, I have now bought your soul. You must promise to become a better man. Go, Jean Valjean, and start a new life. And Jean Valjean does. For the rest of his life, an undeserving thief he is, has this impulse for generosity that is almost uncontrollable. He has to find somebody to to show the same kind of grace and kindness to that he was first shown. You see, Jean Valjean knew he was forgiven because the priest spoke forgiveness over him the priest spoke new life over him in northern galilee jesus meets with his disciples in caesarea philippi and he does so to ask them a really important question who do people say i am you know how the story goes in matthew 16 and mark 8 they come up with all sorts of answers well some think you're john the baptist from the dead Others say you're Elijah who have come down from heaven. Still others say you're like a prophet of old. But Jesus transitions and asks the question, but who do you say I am? Peter's the first to ask or or answer. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, to which Jesus responds. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah was Peter's birth name. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven, and I tell you, You are now Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not even be able to stand against it. Let me ask the question. Did Simon become Peter in the moment Jesus declared it over him? Yes, he did. But Peter would have to learn to grow in to who he truly was. And he would, right? I mean, it took a while. We know Peter's story. Probably the, the epitome of, of his betrayal of Jesus was when he denied him. On the, the night Jesus needed his friends around him, Peter denied him three times. Jesus was then crucified on a cross. So it, it took a while for Peter to get there, but he got there. Peter became the rock that Jesus proclaimed him to be. Friends, as the redeemed sons and daughters of the living God, because of the precious blood of Jesus shed on the cross, hear me, God has spoken holiness over our lives. It is now our job to live into that holiness. It is now our job to align our lives with who we truly are. We are holy, hear me, not because of our performance, but because of God's proclamation over us. Friends, holiness happens when God shows up. It's first his presence, then his proclamation that makes us holy. Afterward, our actions align with that declaration from god our lives are to represent the nature of the god who set us apart friend when we get that backwards we attempt to earn god's grace rather than allowing his grace to transform us conversely when we practice holiness in a way that results in gratitude and when is awe is our natural response to the god who chose us then our holiness becomes obedience marked by humility. Like, we want to please the one who set us apart. We want to please the one who created us. We we want to please the one who gave up his life on a cross to save us. Friend, do you see yourself as holy? No? Guess what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross in our acknowledgement of his lordship over our lives, we have been made holy. Therefore, stop the vain attempts to make yourself holy. Stop allowing guilt and shame to trump the voice of grace. Like Jean Valjean, like Simon turned Peter, take hold of who you have become when the living God spoke over you. You are forgiven. Amen. You are redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. Amen? Amen. You are holy. Now go forth and live in such a way that shows others that you actually believe that to be true. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, regardless of how we might feel about ourselves, regardless of how others might feel about us, When we acknowledged your son Jesus as our Lord, when we trusted in his work on the cross, our very nature changed. But we went from, as Paul says, children of wrath to children of of you. Children you declared as forgiven, redeemed, loved, deserving, and holy. God, despite how we still struggle with our sin and still fail you, we ask that you'd help us this day remember who we truly are. And then in gratitude, with the help of your Holy Spirit, help us to live lives aligned with your declaration over us. We love you, Lord. We need you. And it's for your sake we pray all this. And all God's children said, amen. Amen.